Gracious God, we have come to not only be with you, but somehow see you. Lord, we want to see Jesus. Not with our eyes, but with our souls. So, work your miracle. Take the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, and the reading of your holy scriptures, and transform these so effectively we might see Jesus. Amen. reading from the Old Testament today is from Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire and a mighty tempest all around him. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. From the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as the Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of the darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless this reading of his holy word. Thank you, Karen. So a little bit earlier than 1990 in 1765, uh, Voltaire warned. Formerly, there were those who said, you believe things that are incomprehensible, inconsistent, impossible, because we have commanded you to believe them. Go then and do what is unjust, because we command it. Such people show admirable reasoning. Yet truly, Whoever can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. If the God-given understanding of your mind does not resist a demand to believe what is impossible, then you will not resist a demand to do wrong to that God-given sense of justice in your heart. As soon as one faculty of your soul has been dominated, other faculties will follow as well. And he added, 
and from this derives all those crimes of religion which have overrun the world. Have you ever had a moment, usually it involves a child, where all of a sudden the child becomes aware of the world you know, the hard world the world of genocide, or of war, or of abuse. And you see on the child's face this perplexity, this fear, this horror. How could people be like this? I think in some ways this book that there's going to be a book study on represents that type of thing, the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Um, again, this week, one other review. If Tim Alberta is no longer surprised by the jingoism that has become rampant in the evangelical community, he is not in the least reconciled to it. Indeed, he is agonized. And throughout this book, he proves himself to be an admirably searching and probing narrator, as well as a valiantly conscientious Christian. He submits even his recently deceased father to moral scrutiny father who was a pastor, an evangelical pastor. I thought about dad and how heartbroken he would be, he muses after learning that the church where his father served as a pastor is now riven by political disputes. Then I started to wonder if dad didn't have some level of culpability in all of this. The temptation when a child recognizes the horror of the human condition is to suggest that those atrocities are not capable within each of us that there are good people and bad people. We can identify them. Stay around the good people. Avoid the bad people. Be gallant, not goofers. That's not the gospel. That's not what we believe. It's probably not the truth. When I was recently having this discussion around something like this, I explained, I would like to believe I would never commit a violent act against another human being. 
but I know I could. If you do something to one of my children, God help you. I know that's in me. I'm not proud of that. I know that's my response. I think about that whenever I see violence and I'm tempted to make the world simpler between the good and the bad. And I'm not saying that good and bad do not matter because it does, but it's not as simple, right, as somehow separating the two. It is the wheat and the chaff. How do we separate those two things? And Jesus says, you can't. And that's why grace and forgiveness and suffering and all of those things are part of the gospel. And yet the stakes are so high. Everything really matters. Think about these words of Jesus. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. We often think of that in terms of our own destruction. How about other people's destruction? And there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are very, very, very few who find it. Again, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not do amazing religious things in your name, prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do deeds of power in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And Jesus says, Go away from me, you evildoers, you chaos throwers, you destruction makers, you people trample over herbs. And right before the transfiguration, where Peter says, Lord, I believe you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, oh my gosh, you never could have come up with that on your own. That is a gift from God. And then Jesus opens up his soul to Peter and says, so this is the type of Messiah that I am. I am going to suffer and die. And Peter says, no! The Messiah can't suffer and die. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. For your mind is on the things of humanity and not on the things of God. And then the transfiguration happens next in the narrative to confirm that that way of suffering is actually the way of Moses and Elijah, of the Law and the Prophets. It's not something new. It's been there the entire time. It only seems new. Maybe because 
we tend to have our mind on the things of humanity rather than the things of God. What attracted me most to Presbyterianism wasn't the robe. I liked the study, that's not a surprise, but it was this phrase, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformado. The church reformed, the church corrected, the church repentant is always being corrected, is always being reformed, is always repentant. It's not the church is always dreaming, the church is always innovating. It is that very basic thing. The church is always recognizing that when we get up in the morning, we have on our mind the things of humanity and not the things of God. And so we need people. In fact, our very structure as a Presbyterian church is so people can get into the pastor's face and say that very same thing. And the pastor can say that to the congregation. It's like a marriage, right? We need marriage for all sorts of things, but we need marriage more than anything to keep us honest. This motto calls us to something more radical than we have imagined. It challenges both liberal and conservative impulses and the habits and agendas that it's so easily to fall into. It brings a prophetic critique to our cultural accommodations, either the past or the present, and calls us all to repentance. It invites us as a people to worship and serve a living, real God where the stakes really matter. And to be open always to being reformed according to the Word of God and the call of the Spirit. Now, if you want to be bored to death and you have more time on your schedule than you really should, and you want to ask me someday, how have you seen this play out in your life, say as a pastor or as a scholar or as a dad or as a person, I could take you through. In fact, I think whatever is good in me only flows out of this commitment to repent and correct. Everything. Recently, since COVID, but I started sort of working on this before, really because of what I saw as a pastor, I've been looking and concerned about our practices at a church in terms of religious trauma. I'm honestly less concerned about the financial survival of the church than I'm concerned about the way that we as a church can create religious trauma and re-traumatize. One of the things that I did over the COVID period of time is publish an article in a book, Theology in a Post-Traumatic Church, a book that is edited by our friend John Shevland. The ability for the church to traumatize, and this certainly has been physical, but it's also intellectual and spiritual, starts all the way back 
with the Apostle Paul. It's, it's not something that is a product of the modern era. It is a product of the human condition. And it probably, if I were to guess, is a product that we see in Peter of wanting to change the reality of God and the gospel to something that suits us rather than respond to what is. In the larger context of what Karen read, the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, since it is by God's mercy that we're engaged in this ministry. It's a good place to start. It's by God's mercy that we have any ministry whatsoever. Because of that, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. Now, what comes to mind? Don't volunteer. But it's probably not what Paul is going to say. He says, we refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word. The shameful things that one hides. Are you telling me that people who falsify God's word know what they're doing and they're not completely innocent in doing it? Read the book. But by the open statement of truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. Now, that sounds like Paul is developing a heroic character. Then we have the passage that Karen read, and then Paul says, but we have this treasure in um, clay jars, in broken jars, in fragile vessels to make clear that it is the extraordinary power that belongs to God and it doesn't come from us. So the equation is that it really matters. It matters for us and it matters for other people. Jesus really cares and Jesus warns in a way that we should not only take seriously, but in some ways should probably frighten us. And yet on the other hand, it's not up to us. It is up to God. And it's by God's mercy that we get to be part of what God is doing. Now, if you just hold those things together, there's probably not a lot in your life that sort of fits that balance, is there? There's not a lot of control in that. And yet, that is the gospel. Let's dig down a little bit into what's happening in Corinth. And here, I'm going to rely just on one commentator so we can keep this short and straight, Ronald J. Allen. So in Corinth, new dynamic leaders came to Corinth after Paul and preached another interpretation of the gospel. They held that Paul's gospel was too vulnerable. That is, the apostle must have misunderstood God's purposes. So they taught a gospel of glory, of power, without suffering. Pretty attractive, isn't it? 
if we majored on that, we could double the size of our congregation in a month. So that's what Paul is speaking about. And when Paul says, even though the gospel is veiled by the ruler of this world, and the ruler of this world or the God of this world for Paul is not God, but it is all of those powers structures, impulses to take what is God and somehow make it answer our felt needs. You know, after this letter, we really don't know what happened at Corinth. We don't know who the Corinthian church chose. We really don't know. Was it Paul's message that won out? Was it the dynamic leader's message that won out? The later church clearly sided with Paul, until it didn't. (laughs) And then it's reformed, and it does, until it doesn't, until it's reformed again. You get the idea. Paul advocated for what we might call holy discomfort with the present status of the world, even of the church. Paul's gospel calls for people to be discontent with brokenness, injustice, scarcity, exploitation, violence, and death. So when we see something like Super Bowl of Caring, we shouldn't first think, oh, to be a good person I should give. It should be, oh my gosh. There is the beloved community of Christ without housing. How can I help? The difference is huge. That we live in a holy discomfort in our life. And to believe that God seeks to increase community, wholeness, justice, abundance, peace, love, and life. Now the trick is, to not make this ours, to not make this somehow something that we do and we measure ourselves and then we think we're pretty good. And usually we do that by saying, well, at least we're not fill in the blank, Methodists, Baptists, Lutherans, Catholics, whatever. Because then that completely shifts over to the ruler of this age. On the other hand, the dynamic populist leaders believed that God's purpose was to create religious experience that allowed one to feel good about oneself, right? That's what we would do without seeing the need for kingdom change. And so this so-called gospel provided an escape from the present reality. In other words, don't look there. Don't bring that up. Paul's gospel envisioned God's transformation of the world through love and forgiveness. This change, as Paul so vividly saw, involved, required, necessitated vulnerability and suffering. Because the principalities and powers resist this type of transformation and repentance. And they don't want it ever, these new communities of love and justice and for repentance and forgiveness, to ever really take foot. 
liberal or conservative, never take credit. So Paul says, it is the God, it is God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who ultimately are perishing. Sometimes I think we hear that in terms of eternal judgment, but hear that in terms of this way eventually will end. Did the way of Rome eventually end? Does the way of dictators eventually end? Yeah, is perishing. In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. He's talking about people in the Corinthian church. For we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as the Lord and ourselves as slaves for Jesus' sake. On the day of transfiguration, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. They went up to a high mountain. Jesus was transfigured. His clothes became dazzling white. Um, they could see Jesus. They had to see Jesus, right? The headlights were in their eyes. And then they saw, indeed, this one who just a chapter before said, I'm the Messiah, but the Messiah is going to suffer and die. And they said, no, that's not what Messiahs do. That this one was transfigured, and sure enough, who is standing next to him? Elijah, the prophets, and Moses, the law. The, the faith, their faith. This is what it's all about. And then Peter said, and notice Peter's instinct, it's good for us to be here. Let's build a church, buildings. Let's make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I understand the impulse. Let's get busy. Let's control it. Let's keep it. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, Hey, this is my son. Don't build anything. Listen to him. Obey him. Barbara Brown Taylor said, there was nothing exalted about Christ's life and death unless you had faith to see through them. To stand up front of people twirling your tongue about them was to parade a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. If we are not content with the words at the transfiguration, if we are not content with simply the grace and mercy to listen to Jesus. But we want to dress Jesus up. 
we want him to suffer less, or we want his suffering to mean that we suffer less. If we want him to bless the lives that we've put together rather than listening to Jesus, then Paul's probably talking about us in terms of being veiled. And yet Christ is all around us. That's the mercy of God. And Christ is the solution to everything and the future to everything. Amen.